the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. We have seen God preparing the Israelites to enter into the land He had promised them. He gave them further instructions on how they were to carry the tabernacle and trek through the desert wilderness to a land flowing with milk and honey. God gave special responsibilities to the tribe of Levi in assisting the priests with the duties of the tabernacle. Now, God will give all the congregation of the people of Israel some difficult tasks to handle. God told them to bring out from among the congregation all those who were ceremonially unclean. But what about those suspected to be secretly unclean? We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 5, verse 15. You might be saying, well, what if she didn't do anything wrong? His husband just needs to chill out. You're right. But here's the cool thing about God's instructions. God's instructions provide a way for the entire community, including her, to be protected from harm. Verse 15. Well, if this is the case, whether she did it or not, and he begins to get not just jealous or feel jealousy or have those thoughts pop into his head, but if that happens, begins to now really have reason, well, then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest and he shall bring her offering for her. And then it listed the 10th part of an ephah of barley meal. You shall pour no oil upon it or put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. This is the husband's role. If he wants to make this accusation and wants to put it before the Lord, well, then he's got to be the one to take action. This wasn't something, therefore, a husband would do frivolously because if he's just knowing he's being silly, he's going to lose his reputation very quickly. Secondly, it's going to cost him something because he's going to have to make a meal, not her, nobody else. He's going to have to do this and then he's going to have to bring it all the way down to the tabernacle. So it cost him something to make this accusation. What's interesting about this meal offering, this grain offering, is there's no oil or incense on it. And remember, those were both symbols of are being set apart to the Lord when we looked at it in Exodus and Leviticus. Remember, the purpose of this offering, it says, is to bring remembrance. It's for a memorial. It's to bring to light that which has been hidden if it happened. No symbols of being set apart are included in this grain offering like one would normally have. So that's the husband's role. And then he butts out. He's done. Verse 16, here's the priest's role. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take, and he'll put it in the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head, take her shawl off, and put the offering of memorial in her hands, which is the jealousy offering. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water, which causes a curse. His job is first off, he's got to make this holy water. Holy water here is nothing supernatural about the holy water. The only reason it's called holy is just because the water that was kept in the brass laver, that brass washing tub that they would use to scrub themselves and wash off before they would bring the offerings before the Lord and after they were done. It was holy because it was in the tabernacle. It was dedicated to the Lord. Nothing special about the water. Don't buy any water anyone is selling you. Then he would take some dust and he would from the tabernacle as well, because it's where God's presence is. And he'd put that into the water. Now, again, this is not some sacred poisonous concoction, okay? It's just dirt and water, just dirt and water. So they would put that in there and he would hold this thing. And then 
As the lady would come in, he would bring her near and set her before the Lord. He'd bring her right into the tabernacle, set her right there before the Lord. And he would take that water and he would put it in her hands and he would uncover her head. And the reason he uncovered her head is to show that she stood before the Lord at this point. She wasn't going to stand before her husband, not before the people, or even before the priest. It would be the Lord who would determine whether she was innocent or guilty. He would do that. We take the holy water and he would put it in her hands. And then it says in verse 19, and the priest shall charge her by an oath, or literally means to make her swear an oath, and say unto the woman, if no man have lain with you, and if you have not gone aside or had an affair to uncleanness with another instead of your husband, then be thou free of this bitter water that causes the curse. Do you swear that? Yes, I swear that. But if you have gone aside to another instead of your husband, and if you have been defiled, if you have been immoral with this other man, and some man have lain with you beside your husband, well, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath. He'll make her swear an oath of cursing, saying, and the priest shall say unto the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath amongst your people when the Lord does make your thigh to rot and your belly to swell. And this water that causes the curse shall go into your bowels to make your belly to swell and your thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, I agree. That is my oath. That is my promise. Amen and amen. Let it be true. If I did this, then let God do this to me. If I didn't do it, and I swear I didn't do it, therefore I'm proclaiming my innocence and this can't hurt me. The penalty is, is pretty rough here because it mentions that if she drinks this and she has done it, that something supernatural will occur where it says the Lord will make you a curse among your people by making your thigh to rot. The word there, thigh, it actually refers to the reproductive organs. He'll make your reproductive organs to rot, to become, to fail, to become infertile or barren. And then it says your belly to swell. The belly is the womb. That your womb, the word swell there means to become diseased through retaining fluids. It would make your womb to retain fluids. And according to one medical website I read, fluid, by quote, fluid in the uterus is a case for alarm. As in normal natural conditions, the uterus does not hold any fluids whatsoever in its cavity. The only time that there should be fluid in the uterus is during pregnancy when the amniotic sac holds the amniotic fluids. Aside from this, there should never be any fluid in the uterus. The same website said fluid in the uterus leads to infection and tumors. As a result, it can destroy one's reproductive capacity. So basically what the Lord's saying is, is I'm going to allow fluid to get in your womb and it's going to destroy your reproductive capacity if you're lying. So the wife would say, amen and amen. I'm cool with that because I didn't do anything. She would take the oath. If a woman were to take this oath when she was really was unfaithful to her husband, then she's doing so much more at this point than just being unfaithful to her husband. Because she's basically declaring, God, I don't believe you're real. And I don't believe all this stuff. I think it's all a sham. And so I'll say whatever I have to say to get out of trouble because I don't care what God knows. As long as everyone else leaves me alone, God can think what he wants about me. And that is a big deal. That is a big deal. And thus, it had big consequences. If a woman was innocent and swears the oath, then it would dispel all accusations when she remained healthy and bore children and everything would be fine. And the assumption is that she will. Look at verse 23. And the priest shall write these curses in a book. And then look at what he does right after he writes them down. And he shall blot them out with the bitter water. So he's gonna make a record of everything. Okay, so-and-so came here on this day and she was accused of this, but she said she was innocent. And so we gave her, she took the oath and we pronounced the curse if she was guilty, pronounced her innocence that she'd be fine. And then he would take that same water and he would scrub it over the scroll and he would erase it all. Because at that point, it's done. It's a done deal. If she proclaims her innocence in this fashion, then it's done. The only thing that would prove her guilt is if God were to supernaturally judge her and maybe having to taste some yucky water. 
And he shall cause a woman, verse 24, to drink the bitter water that causes the curse, and the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. Then the priest shall take the jealousy offering out of the woman's hand and wave it before the Lord and offer it upon the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering, even the memorial thereof, and burden upon the altar, and afterwards shall cause the woman to drink the water. Take the offering that she's bringing, declaring her innocence, but also showing her husband's jealousy. Take that, and afterwards she would drink the water. Verse 27, when she has made her drink the water, then it shall come to pass that if she be defiled, if she did it and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. It wasn't bitter beforehand. It would become bitter then and her belly shall swell and her thigh shall rot and the woman shall be a curse amongst her people. And if the woman be not defiled to be clean, well, then she'll be free and shall conceive seed. I mean, she's going to go on with her life and it's supposed to be put behind them. It's supposed to be done. It says, this is the law of jealousies when a wife goes aside to another instead of her husband and is defiled or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he be jealous over his wife and he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute upon her all this law. Then when this is done, the man shall be guiltless from iniquity and this woman shall bear her iniquity. In other words, if she did it, he's totally scot-free at this point. He's guiltless. Now that's interesting because it means if he suspected infidelity and he did nothing, he put the community at risk. Love never overlooks sin. It never does. It covers a multitude of sins in the sense that it treats them as if they hadn't done it but it doesn't ignore the fact that they did it. Love doesn't ignore the hard conversations that need to take place because they're hard with someone who has sinned. Love confronts sin graciously. The way God sets this up, can you imagine how hard this must have been for both of them? I mean, to be accused and then to, but to feel betrayed at the same time that you had to try to take care of this. I mean, this would have been a very difficult thing for both of them. And yet, if done with the right attitude, it would protect both the marriage from suspicion, the wife from harm by others, because back then being a lady under suspicion, look at how they take care of things today in the Middle East. If you're just under suspicion, they'll whip you and flog you in public. They'll take women and bury them where the only thing exposed is their heads and pelt her with stones. Ladies, I mean, you, you think you got it bad here. You go somewhere else, you see how rough it is. There's no questions asked. All it has to be is an accusation. Well, that's how culture was back then. And ladies had less rights back then. So the Lord is protecting her from any harm that someone would want to bring her way. If this is done right, it would protect the marriage from suspicion, the wife from harm by others, but also it would protect the community from judgment. And it's no different for us. If you and I clearly ignore wrong behavior in our spouse or in our kids or in our church family because they don't like talking about it, then you are being selfish. Let's not be selfish. Let's do the hard things. There are times when we'll have a conversation, me and Bev, about our kids, or we'll have a hard conversation about us, or we'll have a hard conversation about somebody. We need to go talk to this person about this situation, or you need to go talk to this person in their marriage, or their spouse comes to me and they're just broken heart and like, Pastor Will, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, let's go talk to them. I don't look forward to that. I know I'm very likely going to ruin somebody's day. I have no desire to do that. And yet, even though it's a hard conversation because I love them, it's something I need to do. Even though I know they might not respond very well to what I'm about to say. There have been things in my life that the Lord said, well, you need to go talk to Bev or talk to the kids or talk to somebody else about. And I think, Lord, I don't want to get in a fight with them. This is something we've argued about before. This is someone that's been to my office before and they didn't want to hear what I had to say that time. Why would I do it again? Because like we've been learning about Sunday mornings, love believes all things, right? Bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love isn't selfish. It does the hard things. Maybe you're sitting here and going, did something get cut out of the end of chapter five? Why is there not a section about when the wife thinks her husband cheated on her? It sounds kind of one-sided, doesn't it? Well, if you'll permit me, may I explain a couple of things to you? The first is that God did permit things in the Old Testament, certain things in Israel that even though they weren't right, he permitted it because of their hard hearts. Jesus taught that, right? Remember they came to him and said, hey, uh, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? And Jesus said, well, what did Moses tell you? He said, well, he told us we could give her a certificate of divorce and put her out. 
And what did Jesus say? For the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you that precept. But from the beginning, it was not so. We find that a lot in the Old Testament law. And the reason is, is because they're different than us. You know, the Holy Spirit was not yet given, the Bible says. He wasn't living inside of them in the same way that we have him living inside of us because Christ had not yet died. So they did not have the same help that we had. They were much more subject to their flesh than we are. And because of their hard hearts, God, he curtailed their behavior. He didn't just allow them to do whatever they wanted to, but he curtailed their behavior because of their hard hearts. Because if he just made everything, said, you're gonna do everything perfect and right and this is how it's gonna be, he knew he'd kill them all. So he curtailed it. And this is one of those areas where he did. Again, ladies, you've come a long way. There was no way you were accusing a man of anything back then. You didn't speak out against a man. It's just not how it was done. So even though God very clearly in this chapter expresses, if a man or a woman, if a man or a woman, in this situation, if God were to said it that way, they'd have just ignored it. And the Lord didn't want to wipe them out. Later on, we find that in Christ, there's either male nor female. I mean, we find that it is reiterated back to God's standard all the way the way it was in Genesis back in the beginning when he created man. He restores marriage to the way it originally was. He restores how we handle forgiveness, how we handle vengeance, how we handle all those things which are different in the law where he permits them to have cities of refuge and all this kind of stuff. That's not the case now because we're not under law. We have God's spirit living inside of us and therefore we can do whatever God wants us to do. We can be obedient to him and our hearts don't have to remain hard. But I think there's a second reason though that it's not mentioned. Remember how I've said that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, right? Well, let me ask you a question. As the groom, our groom, can we ever level any accusation against Jesus? No, we can't. Only us can be accused, right? Only we could be accused. So here's the fascinating part about Jesus, our husband, our groom. He never does so. He never accuses us even though we are unfaithful at times. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, my little children, these things are right unto you that you sin not. I mean, I don't want you to sin, but here's the good news. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, he's not our accuser. He's our advocate. So even when you fail and even when you are unfaithful, there's no ritual like this that Jesus brings you down to. The Bible says if we confess our sins, it's over with and it's done with. He doesn't bring us for any trial. So isn't that cool? In chapter five, as we saw, these hard things had to do with when wrong was done. But sometimes the hard things God calls us to do have nothing to do with anything wrong. They have to do with something good God wants us to do. And that brings us to chapter six. Now the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when either man or woman, again, we see the equality here, shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, they shall do these things. Before we get into them, we probably need to stop and go, wait a second, time out. What's a Nazarite? What's a Nazarite vow? Oh, I know, Jesus, he was a Nazarite, right? No, 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 no. Jesus was a Nazarene, which means he was from the city of Nazareth, which has nothing to do with the Nazarite vow. In fact, the word Nazareth, it means Beantown. That's what Jesus was. That's why they called him Jesus, the guy from Beantown. That's what they called him. He was a guy from the middle of nowhere, or as we might say in central Florida, Biflo. No offense if you're from Biflo. I went and drove out to Christmas for the first time and I was like, I shouldn't say Bithel anymore. This place is out in the middle of nowhere. You go out there and it's beautiful. There's just nothing there. But that's what Nazareth was. It was a city on this hillside out in the middle of nowhere. So Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene from Nazareth. So what is a Nazarite? It says here, when either man or woman shall separate themselves. The word here, separate, means if they're gonna fulfill something special to the Lord. Now, we already actually learned about these special commitments in Leviticus 27. So you can go back and read that. This chapter, though, has 
has in mind a very specific commitment, the Nazarite vow. And it explains that. When either man or woman shall commit to fulfill something special for the Lord, and then it says, a vow of the Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord. And that's what the word Nazarite means. It means a class of persons who have dedicated themselves to the Lord. That second word separates different than the first, and it means to dedicate oneself. What's interesting is in Leviticus 27, it talked about when you wanted to dedicate yourself to help out with the tabernacle. You just wanted to dedicate your time to serve there. This has nothing to do with tabernacle service. This has to do when you would give your entire life to do whatever God wanted you to do for a set period of time. You would say from this time to this time, I'm not going to work in my fields. I'm not going to be with my family. I'm, I'm going to be totally dedicated whatever you want me to do, Lord, whatever that may be. From that period of time, start to finish, I am yours. Now, if you made that vow, there were three requirements. Verse three, he shall separate himself, he or she, shall separate themselves from wine and strong drink. Wine refers to fruit-based alcohol. Strong drink there refers to grain-based alcohol. He shall also drink no vinegar of wine. And this would be a condiment similar to like our salad dressing. They would take bread and, and dip it in there, not salad. So all those types of things. And if you go to Israel with us, you're going to taste some of this stuff and it is absolutely delicious. So I crave that food all the time and I miss it. So I can't get back soon enough. Or vinegar of strong drink, same thing, just a dipping sauce. But neither shall he drink any liqueur of grapes, and so no fruit juice either, nor eat moist grapes or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk, from the, even if it's an unripe sour grape, which no one would want to eat, or even just to the peels or the seeds, no part. Every bit of what comes from the vine or is connected to grain-based alcohol is off limits, none. That's the first rule, no alcohol, no connection to anything that makes alcohol. Secondly, verse five, no shaving, no shaving, no shaving legs, no shaving armpits, no shaving hair, no shaving beard, nothing. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separated himself unto the Lord. Why? He shall be holy, set apart in a unique place, and he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. So you will be showing that you are a Nazarite because people come alongside and go, man, you need a haircut. And you're gonna be like, well, no, I'm taking a Nazarite vow. And you go, oh, I can tell you. you look like all those other crazies. And so who haven't shaven. So, okay, I get it. I see. So that's the second thing. You can't shave. Thirdly, no contact with a dead body. Doesn't matter who it is. Verse six, all the days that he separates himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. He is set apart in a unique place that's given entirely to the Lord. Now, up to this point, it may not have been something that many would have thought difficult, but the part about family does make this very difficult because when making this commitment to the Lord, you knew you were saying no to your family if a tragedy occurred. You would not be at the memorial you would not be there to mourn or grieve. You have to continue on with what God had told you to do. And you know, there are things that God calls us to do where you may have to leave behind some of the things that you love. Now, don't let any of that keep you from obeying God. Because here's the cool part. It says here, if you do that hard thing, it puts you in a special place. You're set apart, holy to him, where he can bless you. Because the Nazarite wasn't just separating himself from things. He was separating himself to the Lord. Now, the most famous Nazarite in the Bible is who? Samson, right? 
That's the most famous one. That's the one most of us think about. He was dedicated from birth and his vow would last for the entirety of his life. From birth to death, he would never be shaven. He would never touch any grape or anything like that. And he could never come near to a dead body. He would never be at mom and dad's funeral, never. And yet what's interesting is Samson's life is the exact opposite of what the Nazarite vow is supposed to teach. It was a life of tragedy. Tragedy of compromise and of self-will. Do you know that when you read a story, he broke all three? All three of them. Read it. Read it in Judges and look for it. You'll find he broke all three of his commitments. He chafed against those commitments and he missed out on the great plan that God had for his life. He repented in the end, praise the Lord. But he missed out on the great plan God had for his life. And so I would tell you this evening, don't be like Samson. You know, if God is calling you to set your life apart to him for a time, be obedient to him. Do it, right? Now, what was a Nazarite to do if he violated one of these commandments by mistake? Like, what happens if somebody dies right next to you? Well, verse 9. And if any man die very suddenly by him, in other words, instantly. In other words, you don't need to run away. No, if someone starts choking, you don't have to go, oh, I got to get out of here before they die. You know, it's like you can give them the Heimlich. It's okay. But what happens if they pass? Well, you do the compassionate thing. You try to help them out. But if they pass, well, then you have to go through, start the ritual all over again. We'll read about that here. If any man die very suddenly by him, close to him, and he has defiled the head of his consecration, he's defiled that which stands for his consecration, the non-shaving, it says, then he shall shave his head in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day shall he save it. Now, Leviticus 15, verses 13 through 15, give the instructions for re-entry into the camp if you've become ceremonially unclean. You had to wait seven days, then you had to clean your clothes and take a bath, and on the eighth day, you would bring an offering to the Lord to be brought back into the camp. So in this case, he would have to do the same thing, but he would have to shave his head. And on the eighth day, verse 10, he shall bring two turtle doves, two young pigeons to the priest, very cheap offerings, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make an atonement for him for that he has sinned by the dead and shall hallow his head that same day. He'll start over. And he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation. He shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering, but the days that were beforehand, they're lost because his separation was defiled. So, you know, this, he would be rededicating his commitment to the Lord. And he would start over starting when day one, when he would shave his head, make the offering and re-enter into this commitment to the Lord. Now you may have thought, well, that's so harsh. How did he sin? It says that he sinned here when he did this. How did he sin? He didn't do it on purpose. How can he control if somebody dies right in front of him? Well, remember that we're not talking about trespass here. This is not something you do on purpose. A sin is something that, that, It's just something that happens. You know, the word sin doesn't imply intent. It simply means you missed the mark. And certainly you fell short of your goal. And certainly if he's not allowed to be near a dead body, he did fall short of that goal, even though it's not his fault. Trespass is the word for when you intend to do wrong. So it's not saying that here. It just means he missed his goal. But I think something else we need to keep in mind is, I don't know about you, but people around me do negative things all the time that affect me, that change how my life turns out. And no, it's not fair, but I still need to handle it correctly. I still need to walk through it. You know, I still need to do what God says. So in this case, it's not about fair. It's just about what's right. And see, this is why the Bible tells us to wash ourselves in his word regularly, because without even realizing it, we pick up dirt throughout our lives. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's hard to even, when I'm watching football sometime in, during football season, I'm switching forth between games and you catch the wrong commercial and you're defiled right then and there. 
It's like, I didn't want to see that. And, and yet it happens. Well, that's why we got to be in the word regularly to continually wash us. And we can't just say, oh, I'm, I'm clean in Jesus. You know? Remember when Jesus came to Peter and he said, you know, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And Peter, the Lord says, if I don't wash your feet, you got no part in me. You need to let me do this. So Peter, of course, goes, oh, not just my feet. Give me a whole bath, Lord. And he's like, I love Peter. I just, I relate, you know, give me a whole bath, Lord. And the Lord goes, you don't need a whole bath, Peter. You're already forgiven. You're already mine. But at the same time, I need to wash you because you pick up junk along the way. So even though you're saved, you need to be washed in the word regularly because we pick up junk along the way. We pick up dirt along the way. Sin of other people, actions of other people around us, they negatively impact us. And we need to wash in the word regularly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this evening. And, and Lord, uh, these are all hard things. I mean, we look at this and, you know, to, to make a commitment to say, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go overseas and serve you or I'm gonna go to Israel instead of taking this vacation or wherever it might be, Lord. Those are hard things. And yet there are special things that come from them, Lord. And, and Lord, maybe you call us to serve this brother or sister or to serve our family in a certain way or to go the extra mile at work or, or whatever it might be, Lord. Lord, sometimes it costs us something. But Lord, we don't want to stay away from doing it because it costs us something or it's difficult. We want to be obedient to you knowing that when we're doing so, we're also in a special place where we're getting closer to you because we're being obedient to you. So Lord, I know there may be some people tonight who've maybe they've got some things they know they need to do or things you've been telling them to do and they've been stubborn about it. Lord, would you help them tonight even now as we're saying, Lord, I know I need to do this. Would you strengthen them and give them the courage they need to do so? Lord, that it might be said of us that not because we're afraid you might break forth upon us and wipe us out, but simply because we love you, Lord, that we are your people who do what you say. We wanna be those people, Lord. So we give ourselves to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God calls us to difficult tasks sometimes. His word is true and never fails. But that doesn't mean we will always understand why things are the way they are or how situations will work out. God calls us to himself through his word. Should we not understand or have doubts, we can go before God and ask him. He will never turn us away. He meets us in our doubts and fears and promises to be with us. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.